This podcast is brought to you by BMJ Best Practice. BMJ Best Practice offers evidence-based, continually updated and practical knowledge that will help you make better clinical decisions. Hello and welcome to this BMJ Best Practice podcast on post-traumatic stress disorder. Kieran Walsh is my name. I'm clinical director at BMJ. Post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD is a common and serious mental health problem. It can affect between 1 and 7% of the population. And PTSD can cause distress, anxiety, depression, substance misuse, even suicide. To tell us about this problem, we have on the line Dr. Matthew Hoskins, consultant psychiatrist at Cardiff and Vale University Health Board. And importantly, Matt is author of our BMJ Best Practice topic on this condition. So Matt, you're welcome. Let's start off by asking, what exactly is PTSD? Sure thing. So um, post-traumatic stress disorder, as you said, is a a common, serious and quite debilitating uh, mental illness that can affect absolutely anyone who's experienced one or more significantly life-threatening or uh, horrifying events, either something that's happened to them or something they've witnessed or even something that they've been told about has happened to a loved one in a, in, a, in a violent or unexpected way. And when we think of PTSD, we generally think of four symptom clusters. And uh, these symptom clusters are um, intrusive recollections, changes to arousal, avoidance behavior, and alterations to the way you think and feel. So with intrusive recollections, we think about um, unwanted distressing memories, images coming back to you repeatedly. We think of dissociative flashbacks and we think of nightmares. With the changes to arousal, we're mostly thinking of hyperarousal, where people's fear circuitry is hyperactive most of the time so that they're on edge, they can't relax, they're easily startled and they're hypervigilant. Avoidance behavior is firstly cognitive avoidance, not wanting to think or engage with the memories, uh, but also environmental avoidance. So trying to avoid trauma-related stimuli in the environment that could bring recollections back in a distressing way. And the changes to the way you think and feel, um, this can encompass feeling quite cold and and emotionally cut off and distant. Um, It can also encompass feelings of anger and um, uh, beliefs and, and feelings around guilt and shame, which are quite common with PTSD. Matt, thank you. That's really helpful. You mentioned a lot of things there. One thing you mentioned was dissociative flashbacks. Can you tell us what they are? Yeah, so a when we talk about flashbacks in PTSD, we're talking about dissociative episodes where someone is not just having a strong recollection um, or a strong reminder of their trauma, but they're actually reliving it within the memory. And they may be uh, not aware of what's going on around them in the room. Uh, they, they may look dazed. They may actually start to act out some behaviors that they may have been engaging in during the traumatic event. And from the perspective of the patient, they're very much still back in that memory and experiencing all those distressing emotions and thoughts uh, that they had as it occurred uh, when it initially happened. Dissociative flashbacks are a marker of severity and um, they are a uh, a specific subtype in uh, PTSD as well. Tell us, how do you make the diagnosis of PTSD? So we make the diagnosis through a a clinical interview. Uh, By the time patients have um, come to me, they've usually seen their uh, general practitioner and maybe talked about some uh, of the symptoms that are troubling them. 
that would warrant a referral to a secondary mental health service uh, such as where I work. And then we collect the information from the patient and uh, we make the diagnosis based upon whether their symptoms are consistent with the the two diagnostic classification systems that, that we use. So we have the uh, DSM-5, which is the, the American-based uh, classification system, and we have the ICD-11, which is the classification system more encompassing uh, you know, the, 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 the whole of the world. The two classification systems don't fully overlap. They can be quite different. DSM-5 is, is very broad and encompasses all the different ways you can have PTSD. ICD-11, in contrast, is a bit more concentrated and really tries to capture the essence of what it is to have PTSD. So as clinicians, we we need to be aware of uh, both classification systems and try to assess whether patients have symptoms or are consistent with, with both. Okay, thank you. And I wonder, have there been any recent advances in the diagnosis of this disorder? Yeah, I suppose the the most recent update with um, DSM-5 included the dissociative subtype, so uh, the the characterization of uh, people with PTSD who also suffer a lot more with these dissociative uh, symptoms, which can be dissociative flashbacks or they can be dissociative absences. With ICD-11, the new advance there is the identification of uh, complex PTSD, which is a a subtype of PTSD where people have not just post-traumatic stress disorder, but they also have profound changes to their personality. And we see this mostly in people who've been through multiple traumas in childhood, abuse, neglect, childhood sexual assaults, those sorts of um, traumas that accumulate in those developmental years. And what happens is the person has not just PTSD, but they have quite profound changes to the way they regulate their emotions, feel about themselves and interact with other people. With the uh, changes in, in DSM-5 and ICD-11, we've got two self-report scales that we use, the PCL-5, which is specific to the DSM-5, and the International Trauma Questionnaire, which is calibrated to ICD-11. You mentioned another uh, phrase there, dissociative absences. What are dissociative absences? So a dissociative absence is similar to a dissociative flashback, except the person may not be getting so stuck back into a traumatic memory, but they might appear more as in a daze or unaware of their surroundings for a period of time. Okay, thank you. That's great. And you also mentioned changes in personality, which may occur in certain patients. I wonder, would those patients then have a personality disorder or is it something different? It's a little bit different. So um, there can be some overlap between um, people who've been traumatized and uh, the way that they have processed the trauma and responded to it. So some people may have been traumatized and fully recovered. Others may have been traumatized and ended up with post-traumatic stress disorder. Some may have been traumatized and ended up with complex PTSD with changes to their personality. Other people may have been traumatized and actually not have many PTSD symptoms, but may have ended up with what we call emotionally unstable personality disorder of borderline subtype. So these are different ways that people might respond to traumas, uh, especially early on in their life. But there are characteristic differences between people who've got complex PTSD and people who've got emotionally unstable uh, personality disorder or borderline subtype. Okay, thank you. Um, Staying on the theme of diagnosis, I wonder what are the common pitfalls in diagnosis? In our general practice, um, it can be 
quite difficult to initially assess people. Um, it might be the first time they're coming to talk to a doctor about what's happened to them, and they might find it incredibly distressing um, to even talk about the types of trauma that they've been through. So I often try to reassure patients when I first meet them that we don't have to collect all the information the first time that we meet. And we might need to meet a number of occasions before they feel comfortable enough to tell me more about their trauma and to collect more information about their symptoms. So I think a common pitfall is wanting to get too much information out the first time that you've met someone. And uh, sometimes it's more useful to allow space for that to occur over time. Another common pitfall in in, in our general assessments of people is not screening for adverse uh, traumatic events in childhood in, um, in, in all of our patients. If someone has been traumatized and they may be struggling with PTSD symptoms, they may not actually want to talk about them. That's not to say that they're not there. So we should be screening for those in our general assessments as well. And I think taking a careful personality history is crucial as well in helping to distinguish those patients that may have more of a complex PTSD picture as compared to a emotionally unstable personality picture. Okay, thank you. And let's move on now to management. I wonder, what's the mainstay of management of this disorder? Sure. So the evidence-based first-line interventions are trauma-focused psychological therapies, or TFPTs. And this is an umbrella term encompassing things such as trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy, eye movement desensitization reprocessing therapy, and um, other sorts of treatments like cognitive therapy for PTSD. Um, So... They are the gold standard first-line interventions that it can be quite difficult to access because of um, provisions in different parts of the world and waiting lists in specific services. So my research is focused on the pharmacological evidence base for treating PTSD. Um, And we know that there are a handful of medications that have a small positive effect in reducing the overall symptom burden of PTSD. And if you're using single drugs to treat PTSD, these would be the SSRI medications, or the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, paroxetine, fluoxetine, and sertraline, as well as the SNRI, or serotonin noradrenaline reuptake inhibitor, venlafaxine, and also the atypical antipsychotic quetiapine. So these are all medications that have got evidence for using as a single drug in treating the overall symptom burden of PTSD. There's additional evidence that augmenting uh, treatment with the interesting cardiac uh, medication prazosin can be useful in specifically reducing the intensity and severity of trauma-related nightmares. And beyond that, um, there is quite exciting emerging evidence that some drug-assisted therapeutic approaches, uh, which are currently being researched, may hold even further benefit for patients with PTSD. Okay, thank you. And you mentioned a lot of the the drug treatments, which is really helpful. Go into a little bit more detail, if you can, on the non-drug treatments also, please, Matt. Trauma-focused psychological therapies, uh, usually an intervention that you'd have with a single therapist and a single patient. You would meet with the therapist for about 60 to 90 minutes every week for between 6 to 12 weeks or even longer. And the first several sessions are usually spent gathering a little bit more information and building up a therapeutic relationship between the the therapist and the the patient. Um, And then depending on the model, what often happens then is you begin to look back at the memories of the traumatic event and build up a a narrative account of what happened and then begin to 
um, understand what some of the thoughts and behaviors might have been at the time of the trauma and how they relate to present difficulties. And the overall goal of TFPTs is to face the trauma and to reprocess those memories and to reprocess the connection between those memories and the distressing um, emotions that accompany their, their experience in the here and now. So that eventually those memories can be filed away as past memories of things that happened um, that are now over. And overall, you know, if, if people are able to engage in, in this, you know, sometimes quite challenging, quite difficult work, um, but very, very effective work, then, um, you know, their, their PTSD symptoms can improve and people can be in remission from their condition. Okay, thank you. That's very helpful, very comprehensive. Um, tell us about pitfalls in management. What are the common mistakes or errors that can be made in management? In terms of pharmacological management, um, clinicians not using evidence-based treatments is a common uh, mistake. Uh, so it's a mistake to assume that there is a class effect for antidepressant medications. Uh, so we can't assume that the SSRI medications are all as effective as each other because the evidence um, uh, doesn't show that they are. Um, that these specific uh, three SSRIs are the ones that should be used. Um, so drugs like citalopram and escitalopram have not been shown to be more effective than placebo. So clinicians should really use evidence-based medications. And we've created an algorithm in Cardiff, um, which you can search for online, which um, helps clinicians in primary and secondary care settings to find the right medications. In terms of pitfalls with psychological therapies, sometimes it's knowing what to do with patients when they're waiting on waiting lists that can take rather a long time. Uh, A common pitfall is for patients to struggle to engage um, once they do arrive at the top of a waiting list and begin doing the the trauma work um, because it it can be quite quite difficult work at times. And another common pitfall of managing PTSD is uh, managing insomnia. Um, Patients with PTSD often struggle with difficulty getting to sleep and staying asleep. Uh, So knowing what we can prescribe to help um, uh, can often be quite a challenge because obviously we want to try to avoid the uh, the addictive medications that can help with sleep uh, such as benzodiazepines and the z meds like sopiclone um, and we particularly want to avoid these addictive medications for sleep because sleep problems in ptsd are a chronic problem and unfortunately people with ptsd also suffer from quite high rates of comorbidity with drug and alcohol um, misuse up to 50 percent so the medications that we quite often tend to lean on in terms of helping to sleep are the ones um, like promethazine or melatonin sometimes trazodone unfortunately these aren't evidence-based medicines specifically for sleep in ptsd as they haven't been um, investigated um, but these are some of the common ones that we use in 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 trauma clinics okay Great. Thanks, Matt. And one last question, which is a question about questions, really. What what have we missed, if anything? Are there any other important points that we could we, we should get across in this podcast? I suppose um, when we think of PTSD, we think of soldiers quite often. We think of combat veterans who have um, uh, combat-related PTSD. But PTSD can occur because of a wide variety of different traumatic events. It can be because of um, interpersonal violence, um, interpersonal assaults. It could be um, natural disasters and it could be car accidents, um, or it could be um, childhood adverse events such as neglect or abuse. Um, So PTSD, I suppose, is a condition that can affect absolutely anyone. 
um, anyone who's unfortunate enough to have suffered from one or more traumatic events. Okay, thank you very much, Matt. And thanks to you all for listening. We hope that this has been helpful and we hope you'll be able to put what you've learned into action to better diagnose and manage affected patients. If you want to find out more, click the link in the podcast to sign into BMJ Best Practice and look at the content on this and other diseases. Thank you once again.